the Great Revolt and Regime Change Storm in a Chinese teacup. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report for the 2nd of December 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about there is a definite revolt in the parliament, um, extraordinary revolt against the banks. Um, the banks have overplayed their hand, Richard, and they are copying it in a way that the Australian parliament hasn't seen for decades. Um, it's going to have huge implications. We're also going to talk about the impending fall of the Chinese government. Take 326 Take or so. Exactly. But, but um, so we're going to be, we're going to show, express a little bit of scepticism about that. We're going to talk about what's happening in China today. And we're also going to talk about a very interesting new report by our um, friend Jack James on uh, more of the claims about the Uyghurs. And Richard's going to, got a few things to say about that. Before we begin, remember, please help us get the show around. Like the show, um, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed before, click the bell icon so you get notified of the updates on our YouTube channel. And there's lots of stuff, including in interview series and um, uh, shorts, especially some of the footage we're going to use today on what happens in Parliament. Uh, and please comment. Make comments. Start a conversation. We'll participate as we can. Uh, the feedback is very, very important. And a few updates first, because there's a number of other... Uh, lines of inquiry that we've always got that we need to make sure you're up to date with um, because things are happening on a number of fronts. First, the big one, we'll play a clip on this. There's definitely something happening on the Julian Assange front. Definitely. So the first sign of life was this week, the New York Times, the Guardian and one other paper um, there were five in total. I don't five, remember. okay. don't remember what they all were. So major global newspapers put out a statement saying it's time to drop the charges against Julian Assange. And that was early in the week. This was a big deal. These were papers that all benefited from the WikiLeaks dump, right? They, they published it. They mm. did exactly what Assange did. He was the publisher, right? <laughs> they published it as well. He's the one who's in prison. So they've finally come out. Better late than never, I suppose, saying drop the charges. And then two days ago in the parliament, uh, today's Friday, so on the Wednesday in our parliament, there was, a, there was a question asked to the Prime Minister about Assange from Dr Monique Ryan. She's the member for the new member who replaced um, Josh Frydenberg. In Kuyong. Kuyong. So she asked this question, and I'm going to play the question and play... Morrison, uh, Morrison, sorry, Albanese. <laughs> Scott, uh, Anthony Albanese's answer to the question and just pay special attention to how he chooses to deal with this. Will the government intervene to bring Mr Assange home? I some time ago made my point that enough is enough. It is time for this matter to be brought to a conclusion. The government uh, will continue to act in a diplomatic way. Uh, but can I assure the member for Kuyong that I have raised this personally uh, with uh, representatives uh, of uh, the United States government. 
my position is clear and has been made clear to the US administration. I will continue uh, to advocate, as I did recently in, uh, in uh, meetings uh, that I have held. Uh, I uh, thank the member for her question and for her genuine interest in this, along with uh, so many Australian citizens who have contacted me. So what you can see there, Richard, is very, he's being very deliberate, mm. very emphatic, and there's a few, he thanks the Australian people who've been contacting his office, and he thanks Monique Ryan for the for question. The question. Yeah. Now, I've been reliably informed by a real insider that what we call question time in Parliament, which is questions without notice, are usually given on notice, mm. right? They, the, um, the questioner often informs their target in advance, I'm going to ask you this question, mm. right? And the target gets to prepare their answer. And the way you know when a question has on no without notice has been, passed with, has been asked with notice is when the, the, uh, the answerer thanks the questioner, mm. right? And that's what happened in this case. So this was staged. But staged in the, like in the best possible sense that, for whatever reason, in the same week that the New York Times and these other papers called for the science changes to be dropped, Anthony Albanese came out and wanted to make the strongest statement he's made as Prime Minister so far. And the other thing I want to point out, he mentioned nothing about the British. <laughs> he was talking directly to the US government, right? that they are, it, the ball's in their court to drop the charges against Julian Assange. So something is going on. We, we, we don't know any more than that. We're just telling you this is a significant update. Watch this space. Um, did you have anything to add to that? No, no. I think you covered it. Okay. Second thing, ASIC inquiry. Um, now, Richard, we'd been hoping this week we'd get up a, another inquiry, which we'll talk about more in a minute, uh, on regional banking. That didn't happen this week. We're going to shoot again for February. But just to remind everyone, there is this big inquiry into ASIC and we need all financial victims to make your submissions. If you've been a victim of ASIC for financial system and, and didn't get recourse or even proper attention from ASIC, please make a submission to that effect. We have to keep reminding you because Christmas is coming up. Submissions close on the 3rd of February. So don't put it off too much. Organise yourself to make your submission. This is an inquiry that's going to be a big inquiry. We have to make it work, and it requires the public's participation. So remember that. And the third one is um, something else we want people to make a submission to, which mm. is there is an inquiry into the parliament into nuclear power. So you're going to write an article on this. The, the, uh, the, the date is the, um, the 12th of December, right? That, that's the deadline for submissions. This is, a, this is something that the Citizens Party has been pushing for a while. We campaign on nuclear power in the election, right? Um, because nuclear power, we see, is the win-win solution, mm. right? You can, you know, all the energy problems we have in Australia, we're sitting on mountains and mountains of uranium mm. and thorium, right? And it's all clean energy. By every definition of clean energy, it's clean energy, but it's 100% reliable energy, and it can transform this country. And what we want to get, the message we'll get through to the um, inquiry is we, could, we should be developing our own nuclear power industry invested in by a government development bank. That's how we could transform Australia, right? And instead of having all this hand-wringing, 
you know, where um, we'll just call call uh, BS on Chris Bowen saying mm. nuclear is the most expensive form of energy, etc. When what he's dealing with is the most mm. expensive form of energy. Yeah. Why does he think other countries want to buy our uranium? Yes. Well, every time he says that, every time he says that, Chris Bowen, like this is, this is what is really frustrating about domestic politics. Politicians make arguments mm. for political points within Australia that what they're actually saying is everyone around the world are idiots. Now, if, if Chris Bowen goes around the world, mm. he's not going to call the Americans idiots, the British idiots, the French idiots, the Chinese idiots, the Japanese. He's not going to call them idiots to their face. The but Germans the, who are restarting the most anti-nuclear government besides Australia on the planet who are now restarting their mothball nuclear reactors. Exactly. Yeah, so, so ignore the debate within Australia. We have, it's, it's totally fake, right? We have to change it. And this, we are sitting, we have the world's biggest known resources of this stuff. Let's use it. And um, it'll solve a lot of problems. If you, want to, if you truly ever want to move away from fossil fuels, it's got to be nuclear mm. because all the other ones don't get you there. Um, all right, those are the updates. So that's the 12th of December. What we want, We're going to put a link below. A lot of people have supported the Citizens Party's campaign on this. Now we want you to make submissions. You don't have to make um, big fancy submissions. A lot of experts will do that. Make a submission from the standpoint you're a member of the public and you want to convey to this committee that you support this option. You support nuclear power, right? And please do, because then that that itself needs to be stated because there's a general impression that Australians are against nuclear power and the, this committee needs to see there's plenty of Australians who are for it. Uh, and Richard, you're going to be writing our submission. Yep. So we'll have plenty to say as well. All right, that said, let's get into it because there's plenty to talk about. The Great Revolt and... We've been talking about the closure of regional branches, regional bank branches. This is disgusting. I want to put these up on the screen. Uh, the 30th of November, two days ago, Moree Plainshire Council put this um, statement up on their Facebook page. Meeting with Westpac officials. Um, uh, look at the second part. They, they describe a meeting they've had because Westpac is shutting the branch at Moree. Robust discussions regarding this short-sighted decision to remove a bank branch presence from our community will leave many vulnerable community members with no access to banking services other than digitally. This supports no equity for those digitally disadvantaged, poor connectivity and the social and financial impacts of no face-to-face -face banking. Mayor Mark Johnson said this removal of people's banking choice with zero community consultation will leave a big impact on customers and small businesses who are now left without access to the fundamental aspects of banking. Although our preferred outcome was to retain our local Westpac branch with full services that will help us grow and support our local community now into the future, the reversal on this decision by Westpac doesn't seem imminent, end quote. And when they say robust discussions... That's polite. That's a polite way of saying a shouting match. Shouting match. Like this, <laughs> these are angry councils because they know the impact this will have. This was um, yesterday. This is a Facebook post from Cobram. Someone um, put out a, 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 a Facebook notification in Cobram. That's Victoria, right? Victoria inside the border. Just received an email. ANZ Cobram branch is closing Wednesday, 17th of May, 2023. And the first, quote, the first comment underneath was, wait, wait, like permanent or just for a day? No, permanent. Um, 
I, Richard, I spent last night on the phone with a very angry CEO from a council in New South Wales. They're losing their last um, bank branch, and he knows the excuses are rubbish. But these CEOs are talking to us because they see our campaign. Now, we've got a, cam we've got a positive campaign for a postal bank, which is a solution to all this. But in waging that campaign, we've had to get involved in this question of regional bank closures mm. because it is we were, you know, our campaign for a postal bank is going to take time to come to fruition and we're going to take on the power of the banks, etc. These guys are going hard. They are just gutting these communities right now um, and they're not slowing down, right? So we're going to have to, we're trying to get involved in that and help hit back at these guys. We got excellent coverage in the ABC for the what's happening in Coober that we've talked about the last few weeks. Really good coverage there. Um, which and also for the postal bank campaign, which which actually referenced that, which is great. But bear in mind, we're talking about banks. This is this is one of the big issues here. The banks are saying that they're making commercial decisions because they're private businesses who have to make commercial decisions, and the politicians accept that. That's the that's the worst part of this discussion. Mm. The politicians accept the premise because it's not true. They are not private commercial operations. They are four privileged companies that are subsidised by the taxpayer no, like nobody else is. They're the only four companies in Australia not allowed to go broke. And they're getting billions of dollars from the taxpayer, right? And this is, they're, they're, they're turning around and their thanks is to gut communities all around Australia of their banking services. So what are politicians going to do about it? How long do you accept this? Well, that's why we're talking... This, uh, this segment's not so much about the branch closures, but about what's actually happening in Parliament. Because last week we talked about this extraordinary backflip where Stephen Jones, the finance minister, had announced that Labor would support the idea of civil penalties for bankers. 24 hours later, after taking a call from Anna Bly from the Banking Association and from the bank executives, Labor backflipped. Mm -hmm. right? We said he bent the knee to the bankers. They showed they're in charge. Well, that has had political consequences in the building. So we're going to play a couple of videos now just to give you a flavour of this revolt. There is a revolt that's, that's it's now, um, you know, it's, it's gone beyond politeness. And in fact, the videos we show you will prove it's gone beyond politeness. There's no politeness anymore, right? Often parliamentary revolts are a little bit polite. They're not, they're not polite anymore. So the first video we're going to play is the Green Senator Nick McKim now, on Monday in the Senate, there was a matter of public importance debate and the Liberals actually moved it and it was into what Stephen Jones had done the week before where he had a deal with Nick McKim on civil penalties for bankers, fines for bankers, and, and then he dropped it. And, and he pretended he didn't have a deal, right? And so we're going to play Nick McKim, the Green Senator's contribution to this debate in this first clip. And this is as no holds barred as you'll see in the Australian Parliament. Senator McKim. Well, thank you, Deputy President. Uh, I placed the facts of this matter on the, the record in this chamber last week, uh, and I don't intend to labour them, but without any shadow of a doubt, uh, the Assistant Treasurer and I did have an agreement to include in the financial accountability regime civil penalties for people who breach their accountability obligations. But uh, what we saw um, last week was not just Labor uh, refusing to honour an agreement. It was one of those moments when Australians got a bit of a peek through the curtains at who actually runs this place. Last week, 
was as transparent an exercise of power by the big business community in this country as you would ever want to see. Within 24 hours of the agreement going public to put million-dollar fines on dodgy bankers who ripped off their customers, the Labor Party folded in a screaming heap under the weight of lobbying by the big banks. Now, I remind people these are the very banks who donated well north of $400,000 in the last 12 months that we have uh, donations data for in this country. I'll tell you what, money talks and it talks very loudly indeed in this place. The other thing is it was the way the banks steamrolled the Labor Party. They weren't even slightly shy or ashamed about it. They were naked in their exercise of power. In fact, they wanted everyone in this place to see that they made the government renege on the agreement. The banks wanted everyone in the duopoly here, Labor and the LNP, who might be thinking about pushing for something that curbs bankers' power, who might be wanting to tilt the scales in favour of the customers and against the big bankers, to know that, in fact, it is the big bankers who are in charge of this place. And my word, they've got the Labor Party on a short leash. We saw that last week. Now, they don't really need the Liberal Party on a leash because they've been bred to be loyal to the big banks, <laughs> which is why Senator Bragg's motion is, quite frankly, a little bit of rubbish. The inclusion of civil penalties for individuals who breach their accountability obligations was consulted on by the former government, was the subject of consideration by the Senate Economics Committee into both the previous governments and this government's bill. So the idea that it's come out of nowhere is absolute tosh. The policy is straightforward. The public benefit is abundantly clear to the public, and we now know the only people who don't want million-dollar fines for dodgy bankers who rip off their customers are the dodgy bankers who rip off their customers that have both the major parties in this place right where they want them. Thank you, Senator McKim. So just to remind you, <laughs> I, had to, I had to write this one down, Richard because he was talking about the fact that it, he, Nick McKim wasn't fooled by mm. the fact the Liberals had moved this motion. Because, yeah, it's right, go after Labor. But he wasn't fooled by the Liberals. What did he say? They don't, he said they've got the Labor Party on a short leash. We saw that last week. They don't really need the Liberal Party on a leash because they've been bred to be loyal to the big banks. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. But the revolt is um, undeniable, right? So that was Nick McKim's contribution. Now watch an even better one. This is Jared Rennick mm. in the same debate. One Liberal who they probably wish they did have on a leash. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent point. The, the best contribution came from a Liberal because he's out of step with the rest of the Liberals and he even alludes to that in this segment, right? So watch what he says and especially the way he ends this contribution. Senator Rennick. Deputy President, and uh, what can I say? This motion today is just money for jam. Uh, and it really just uh, proves what uh, we've been saying for a very long time, and that is the Labor Party is the party for the big end of town. And it's interesting. I'll slightly disagree with the wording of uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Senator Braggs, where he says, the Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones to appropriately consult um, in regards to this. I'd actually disagree with that, because 
As it turns out, uh, he got all the consulting he needed. He got a phone call from the former Queensland Labor Premier, Anna Bly, who of course is now the head of the Australian Banking Association. Now, if you, if you want a good example of just how close the big end of town, the banks, are to the Labor Party, look no further than who's the head of the Australian Banking Association, former Queensland Premier Anna Bly. And what was Anna Bly famous for up in Queensland? We call her the Minister for Privatisation. She sold all, of Queensland's, all, the, all the assets that belonged to the Queensland people, the Queensland forestry plantations, which are freehold, for five times earnings. Five times earnings. She sold the Port of Brisbane for six times earnings, a 99-year lease for six times earnings. Gave our assets away to the mates in the big end of town and to her mates in the superannuation funds. Uh, and of course, she's got her payback. She's got her 30 pieces of silver. And of course, who is the master puppet pulling the strings behind uh, former uh, Queensland Premier Anna Bly? Uh, no less a person than the Minister uh, for Agriculture at the moment, uh, current uh, Senator Murray Watt, who is the chief of staff for all this. So we know that the Labor Party is in thick with the big end of town. I mean, we hear Senator Watt talking all the time how he engages with industry groups in agriculture. Well, let me tell you, as a sixth-generation farmer, we don't engage with industry groups. We're too busy out in the paddock working to be hanging out with the big end of town, the blowhards. No, 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 no. This is not a party that cares about the workers. Let me tell you that. This is not a party that cares about the workers. And the history of the Labor Party and, and getting into bed with the big banks goes back, you know, there's another great example of how they sold the CBA. And of course, Senator Ayres was talking earlier on about how there's all this, you know, bad behaviour in the big banks. I'll tell you why there was bad behaviour in the big banks, because you privatised CBA without any regula regulation. At the same time, you introduce superannuation, where basically people are being the workers, having their money taken from them given to these financial planners, many of whom you know, started working for the big banks. I mean, remember the 90s? CBA bought Colonial Mutual, National Bank bought National Mutual, Westpac did a joint venture with Bankers Trust, and ANZ uh, uh, did, did a deal with ING. So it's the big banks, again, I mean, you know, I often say that the industry super funds are out there um, uh, good mates with Labor, but it's also the private sector as well that's very good mates with Labor. And of course, as I've always said, and I have to sometimes remind my colleagues on this side of the chamber, that Robert Menzies himself said in the Forgotten People speech that the rich and powerful can look after themselves. He made it very clear that we're about people that want to get about every day and put their nose to the grindstone. And of course, the minister for Stephen Jones, he doesn't know whether he's Arthur or Martha because he's thought he was going to get in there and save the world. And he suddenly realised that the lobbyists, the lobbyists, and I spoke about this last week, the Cory Mail reported it, lobbyists should disclose who pays them. It's not just political parties, because I tell you who's pulling the strings in the world. It's not us. I mean, I've often thought about engaging a lobbyist myself to get something done around here. So I can tell you what, as an elected member, I'm not getting much done, as an elected representative of the people. But let me tell you, but no, no, a phone call from Anna Bly and Stephen Jones, the uh, Minister for um, Whitlam, just suddenly pulls uh, the, the fees for the big, big end of town. And that is just so typical of the Labor Party of today. I mean, they tell me that the seismographs are going off in Bathurst where Ben Sheafley's rolling in his grave. Rolling in his grave. King O'Malley, rolling in his grave. The great man who actually started the Commonwealth Bank 
way back then, and it was also part of the Reserve Bank, and they actually had a business bank, and they funded this stuff. So I'm, I'm very glad, and, and, and I think the Labor Party need to take a really good look at themselves, because this is not a party that stands up for the working class anymore. They are a party for the big end of town, big end of town, and of course we know that. We aren't surprised because the first thing they did, Stephen Jones did, was remove the disclosure requirements for super funds. I mean, I tell you what, this guy, he's, he's the minister for, as the Australian Financial Review called Thank him, the you, minister uh, Rennick, your for time the dogs has expired. Burgers. So yeah, one liberal they wish they had on a leash. And, and Jared Rennick, He's one of the members of the Rural and Regional Affairs and Transport Committee that want to get an inquiry into what's happening in regional mm -hmm. banking. He's the one who last week had raised the Cooper issue in the parliament, right? Yep. Because he knows this is rubbish. But now we're going to play you another video that is even bigger because um, there's a priesthood that governs Australia, Richard. Mm. Most people wouldn't know that. They think, you, they think we have elected politicians and like, like the equivalent of kings. But if you know the old, the old power structures in the old kingdoms, the only person who could ever match the king for power, of a different kind of power, but very powerful nevertheless, was the high priest, mm -hmm. right? whom the king would often be afraid of. Yeah. We have that here as well. Yeah. Well, in, in, the, in the former British Empire's case, then the, the, the head of the church was also the head of state. But, <laughs> that's right. But then you also have the head of the central bank, right? Cut out. Well, that's it. And that's the real high priest. The high priest is the head of the central bank. These people are above politics. Well, that's the, that, that's, they're above accountability, democratic power. They're above democratic power, right? So this week, Philip Lowe had to front the Senate. The Senate has been, since 2019, getting the Reserve Bank in to, Senate, to the Senate Economics Committee, but it's only been the Deputy Governor. This week was the Governor himself, and what people would have heard in the news is he made this apology about mm. um, interest Ab rates. Yeah, about getting the forecast wrong and suckering people into borrowing too much money for houses and so on. So that was the headline thing. That was the big thing he did. Well, frankly, in terms of how power works in Australia, what you're about to see is much more significant to that than that much more significant. Um, Jared Rennick again is the questioner. He actually followed on again from Nick McKim. Nick McKim had raised in his questions, we're not going to play that, um, we'll find ways to, in fact it's on, we can link below to the full uh, questioning, we just don't have time for it in the show today. Nick McKim had raised to um, uh, Lowe the fact that he only uses one tool to control inflation, but there's lots of other tools. And there's a section in the Constitution called Section 36. Sorry, not the Constitution, the Reserve Bank Reserve Act. Bank Act of 1959. Yeah, it's Section 36. And this section allows the Reserve Bank to tell the banks how much the, they should be lending for different types of um, mm. credit, right? Housing versus business, etc. They have the power to do that. And Lowe said, he said, why aren't you using that to help the economy out, mm. right? Control it that way. Take the lending out of the housing bubble, which is what's given us most of our problem, put it in productive areas, etc. And Lowe said, well, no, 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 we don't want to use that power. That, that's a left, he called it a leftover power, mm. and it would be a retrograde step to use it, right? That's actually what he said. There's a power there, he is deciding we're not going to use it on behalf of the Australian people. So then Jared Rennick takes up the questioning and well, you can see how Jared um, ends up treating the, the high priest of the, uh, the power structure in Australia. And I'll call Senator Rennick. Yeah, hi, how are you going, uh, Governor? Um, 
Given you've said earlier on today uh, in your comments that there was a lot of certainty in early 2021 around COVID, 2020, 2021 around COVID, yep. why did you come out and say that you wouldn't lift interest rates to 2024 when there was so much certainty? And why should you keep your job? Um, and, and in that context, who, who ex in context, who exactly are you accountable to? Uh, a few things. Um, we never said that we wouldn't raise rates until 2024. And that's how it's widely interpreted. Uh, what we said was that uh, we wouldn't raise rates until inflation was sustainably in the two to three percent range. And given all the uncertainties, we didn't expect that to be until 2024. So it was a conditional statement. This is, the, this is when we'd raise rates on this condition and we expected this condition to be met then. So that's what we said. And um, I accept that people interpreted that as we wouldn't raise rates until 2024, but that's okay. not what we said. So um, um, who are we accountable to? We're accountable to the parliament and to the Australian people. And I'm here today as part of that accountability exercise and uh, go to the House Economics Committee as well um, twice a year where I answer their questions for three hours, as I'm doing today. So. That's okay. the accountability mechanism. Sure. And just got it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. So I've only got yeah. five minutes, so I need to keep going. You saw, said also a couple of times today that um, the supply side should fix itself. Uh, and I note that one of the mandates of the RBA is price stability, currency stability. Ultimately, inflation is, is a product of supply and demand. Yeah. Um, and I'll just pick up on your most, one of your most recent comments today was you're not in the business of supplying credit. You'll leave that to the private market. But yet, that's exactly what central banks do. You give credit to the banks, uh, and in particular the Federal Reserve and the ECB, you know, have printed you know, trillions of dollars in the last two decades, and then they hand it out to the prime banks and let the prime banks spray it around. What's wrong with using that section 36 of the, of the Banking Act to actually let governments lend to governments and not waste money on a margin that the private banks always use? I mean, surely it's our, it's our own currency why are we then paying private banks that interest, net interest margin to use our own currency, or even worse, use foreign currency and pay interest on foreign currency when you know, we have the ability to issue credit in a responsible yep. way? So I'm not talking about lending to private markets yep. here or the private, private sector. I'm talking about government debt, so things like state debt, right? Why does the state, you know, a, um, you, know you take the, the Belt Road, for example, with the Victorian government, why do they have to borrow from China when they should be borrowing from our own central bank? Um, well, there are a few issues there. The governments, Australian governments don't borrow from the banks, so they're not paying a bank margin. Uh, the well, they, they borrow bonds. On, well, they, on, but they, yeah. they pay a market rate of interest. Exactly, on, on which the includes a margin. They have, they have to pay interest. Uh, they pay the, the market rate of interest. Um, back to the same kind of response to Senator McKim's question, I think it would be a retrograde step for the Reserve Bank to be sitting here making decisions about uh, allocation of funding. Uh, we could do climate change, we could do infrastructure, we could do advanced manufacturing, we could do building hospitals, and then the Reserve Bank becomes the arbiter of who gets credit in the economy. The better way of doing it is for the governments to make decisions about where they want to spend money and then to raise the money in the capital markets. There's oh, no, oh, and look, ultimately, so there's I, no I agree free lunch. There's so, no free lunch. Even oh, if they, oh, no, no, oh, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, but there is a margin. Banks have a net interest margin. I've been a treasury accountant yeah. at a bank. I know how it works. 
Okay, and I agree with you, it's not up to the RBA on what decisions they make, but if Parliament decides that on central, essential infrastructure like bridges, roads that have an asset, that is an asset that generates a return, that the RBA can lend in or you know, issue credit within an infrastructure bank. I mean, companies go out and issue shares. They don't always go and issue new equity. They don't always go out and borrow money. Yeah. Right? If we've got an increase in population here that's increasing demand, we need to increase the volume of supply. And the 1937 Banking Royal Commission actually said central banks should control the volume of money in the system and should be, or have an oversight to it. Um, and you're completely washing your hands of that. And to me, like, it's, it's absurd that a government doesn't control, it just wants to outsource money supply to foreign banks. Uh, I, the Australian government doesn't outsource money supply. We, we control the um, money supply. But you control qualitative. You, know, if, you, you just think kind of the world, we kind of accepted your proposition, the government wants to spend money and it just, the Reserve Bank just gives it the money. That's not what I'm saying. Well, that's... That's not what I said. If Senator, we, so please don't put words in my mouth. Senator Rennick, you, um, there's been quite a lot in your questions and I think the Governor is attempting to answer them so sure. we, okay. we might just yes. let him give an answer for a if moment. If we were to, let's say in this hypothetical world, we would lend the um, our government money if, then we would have to charge an interest rate and we'd charge the market interest rate. It would be the same as the, you know, we were lending 10 years, we'd charge the government the 10 year bond rate. So it wouldn't it wouldn't lower the government's cost of financing, it would just inject the central bank into the whole process and if we decided to lend to the government at a below market interest rate, then we're providing a subsidy. And I think that's, that's appropriate. And which, which projects would we provide the subsidy for? I just, it's we, better for the government to go to the market and to borrow. There's no way that we can provide cheaper funding in the end. Um, that's, yeah, okay. you know, yeah. we, it's, not, it's not the job of the central bank to subsidise government finance. If you do that, you end up with inflation and resources. Well, well you're subsidising right. private banks. You've got, you've got one banks. final question. Yeah. Well, well, that's a bit hypocritical yeah. coming from yeah. you because yeah. you're subsidising private banks. You've just lent $188 billion to our private banks here in Australia at 0.15% and said to them, you don't have to repay it until 2024. Yeah. So they are creaming it. They're creaming billions of dollars. So you're a hypocrite when you say that. Uh, Sorry, Senator but, Rennick, that's not appropriate. Okay, well, do I'll you withdraw have a that comment. But, do you have a you know, question? That conflicts with what you've just said. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, the, the question is, is that, that's, is that why do you then think it's okay to subsidise private banks? And that's what happens with the Federal Reserve. They lend out to prime banks. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it OK then for the RBA to subsidise private banks and not use quantitative easing, which is what effectively central banks in other countries do? And constructive Well, we did, we did undertake quantitative easing. We bought a couple of hundred billion dollars of bonds. Um, and during the pandemic, we thought the right thing to do was to pass low cost of funding to banks so that they would pass it on to their customers. So you're subsidising banks. We were not, exactly we were not involved in credit allocation at all. We're and I don't think you should be. Yeah, no, we shouldn't be. Yeah. So, um, the, and the, um, we wanted during the pandemic as part of our insurance policy to make sure the interest rates for borrowers were as low as they could possibly be to give people extra cash flow. So you accept your subsidised price There's, there's no, that further, was for period, for no, for no further questions. For a short period there during the pandemic, I thought we thought that was the right thing to yeah. do. So you we're can subsidise private banks, not, but not the taxpayer. Thank you. Know, you. I'll yeah. take that as a comment. Thanks. There you go. Hypocrite. Because that's what he is. I will not use this power that we have to help the Australian people because that would be subsidising the government as if subsidy is a dirty word. Mm. 
and yet, and Jared just pounced straight away, hit him right between the eyes. You are subsidizing the banks yep. to that they lend them $188 billion at 0.1 to 0.25% interest, and they allow them to park that overnight at 3%. It's a free gift. It's and when and when we played that clip last week mm. or the week before, and Jared Rennick was asking the deputy governor about it. The deputy governor's sidekick had interrupted and, and said, well, it is supposed to be a subsidy. The Reserve Bank called it a subsidy for the private banks. Yet the governor says a subsidy for the taxpayer, for us, mm. so that we could build affordable infrastructure, etc. That would be bad. That would be a retrograde step. Well, retrograde means backwards. Um, Richard, what was the development of Australia like back in the old days? Well, I mean, until we got the Commonwealth Bank that used to be the government lender and the central bank. I mean, we didn't have development. We had There was no highway from Melbourne to Sydney until the 30s. There was no... We still don't have common rail gauges. And then what, <laughs> but then what happened when we got the Commonwealth Bank? And then we bank? get the Commonwealth Bank. Suddenly it's able to lend to things like public housing, uh, you know, infra all sorts of infrastructure, community projects up to, to huge nation building, things like the... It was supposed to fund the supposed snowy. Supposed to fund the snowy, yeah. Uh, it didn't, even though they seem to think they did now. It funded, um, yeah. <laughs> it's on their website. They take credit for it. Uh, they didn't actually. But uh, and it funded two world war efforts with no inflation. No inflation. That's the retrograde. That's what he calls a retrograde step. The guy who told you to go out and buy a house because there's not going to be any interest rates for three months, three years, right? Mm. Interest rate rises for three years. I mean, this is the issue here is not Philip Lowe's lies. The issue here is that. There's senators in front of him in the building that are calling his lies what they are and calling him what he is, right? Risking their life, politically, mm. to say the high priest is a liar and a hypocrite. That's how you change history, by being prepared to take on the talk truth to power like that. And that's what Jared Rennick did. So um, now the cat's out of the bag, though. Right? Their, their hypocrisy is writ large and bring it back to the, to the regional banking question. They've been given all the money in the world. It's worth $6 billion clear profit to the bottom line of the big four banks. $6 billion, and they're turning around because they have a digital agenda, a digital strategy to massively profit them and increase their power over the system even more. They're turning around and just smashing, dismantling the country in front of our eyes. And so when the Citizens Party takes up an issue that you might think, Oh boy, you're getting into the reeds on that. It's, you know that, that you've gone off on a bit of a detour on that. No, it's never a detour. Sometimes you've got to get into the details to bring them back to the main argument because that's what that's what the regional banking issue is about. That's what the postal bank fight is about. Who has the power in Australia? And right now we've got two political parties that are on the leash by the banks, but there's a growing revolt in the parliament, and it's among the crossbenchers, and it's on the fringes of the because Jared is a liberal. Jared Rennick's a liberal. It's, 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 it's even breaking into the Liberal Party, right? The revolt is there and it's not going to go away. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why we have to keep focus on this fight. You change this, you change everything, right? The banking system is the framework that defines the way the rest of the country works on all fronts. All right, so exciting times. Let's move on, though, in the time we've got left. Regime change storm in a Chinese teacup. So... I'll let you talk about this, uh, Richard. The big issue, I mean, okay, so a couple of things. People know there's lots of protests in China, but just your assessment, what's the essence of it, basically? I mean, these are a few hundred people, you know, in various locations. Um, 
some of it's genuine. Uh, I mean, they're sick of lockdown. Yeah, everybody's Weren't sick of all? lockdown. Weren't yeah, we all? exactly. So, you know, um, but as you made the point the other day, it's like if you think what are tens of thousands of people in Melbourne, well, that didn't bring down the Andrews yeah, government. No. They just got in with, with the same majority, right? Or yeah. around the same sort of... So got back in the other day. So, um, you know, you think a few hundred people in this city or that city in the country that has one-fifth of the world's population and you get hundreds, not tens of thousands of people, that's going to bring down the central government? Like, please. Yeah, and the average person wouldn't think that, except that's what the media and the, the social yeah. media is trying to tell them. Yeah, and so these are genuine protests, genuine grievances that people have. And, and there's, I saw some figures the other day. There are hundreds of protests every day yeah. across China, as you would expect, because like I just said, it's one-fifth of the world's population. So pretty much take the average of protests everywhere. You can apply that across China. It's pretty much the same, right? You know what you're not seeing? You're not seeing um, anywhere near the scenes of police brutality that we nope. saw in Nothing at all. France, in Victoria, in Canada. <laughs> Justin Trudeau yeah. told, made a statement the other day that the Chinese people have the right to protest these COVID lockdowns, and every Canadian said, eh? Is that right, eh? <laughs> that, what are you talking about? <laughs> so the guy, who's, the guy who took money out of Canadians' bank accounts hmm. so they wouldn't protest in Ottawa is t now challenging. What happens is our leaders feed this narrative that Chinese are bad, every protest against China is protesting the greatest evil in the history of the world, and it's going to bring down the regime. Yeah. And now the other side of these protests is, yes, there are legitimate protests going on like there are literally every day in China. They're not, they're not repressed. They're not any of the stuff that you hear. Talk to anyone who's actually lived yeah, and worked yeah. in China. No. That's, you know, in, in fact, if anything, their government is more responsive to protests. Well, that, well that's... Well, dramatically so. Exactly. Right? Because they, they're always, they actually have a public feedback mechanism yeah. in China. And if it gets to the point where there's protests, they want to know... Now, there was a terrible fire in Arumchi. That's been completely misrepresented. Yeah. The, the street was clogged. It wasn't that the building was, was um, uh, they couldn't, you know, the building was locked up. The street was clogged, and that's why the, the fire engine couldn't get couldn't close get enough. Couldn't get into there, yeah. But remember a similar case in a place called London, literally a block away from the Queen's house? Yep, where, where the police ordered people to stay in their flats until they burnt to death? And is, is that a symbol of the evil... Like the regime's about to come down, right? And it never is. If only. Um, How's the other? I've got to make this other comparison. To London. The white. This is the. You'll, you'll see this on the news. People are protesting in China by holding up a white sheet mm. of paper. You know who they're copying? The people who, when King Charles was foisted on the British people without an election, mm. anyone in in Britain who wanted to protest that held up a white sheet of yeah. paper too because they got arrested. Yep. First, they went out with signs with writing on them. They got beaten up and arrested. So then they went out with blank pieces of paper. They got beaten up and arrested for that. Um, but no, the other thing of this, these, pro, these uh, protests, just quickly, is there is a, an attempt by the usual suspects to take these things over. You've got people... There's all sorts of videos floating around on, on social media where if you can even pick out the different dialects, whether you even understand them or not. Yeah. People are turning up. They don't speak the local lingo. They're, trying to they're getting howled down by the locals... Um, more, there's counter demonstrations that are larger than the original demonstrations. Yep, yep. There's um, a BBC cameraman got arrested for incitement and said, oh, you know, the authoritarian, blah, blah, blah. No, 
um, someone got, got hold of the uh, group chats on Telegram that he was part of, telling people where to go, what to say, all the, you know. So, um, you know, there is that side of it, as there will always be, because the, the Chinese intelligence services are not all powerful, and there are infiltrators, and there are foreign agents, just like there are anywhere. And China, and China is extremely sensitive to any kind of foreign interference that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's designed to bring down, um, overthrow their government. Um, yeah, I mean, as I mean, look at look at the carry on you get here every time that anybody who, of course, you know, whether there's anything to it or not, they flip their wigs about foreign. Well, there's a man. So, there's a man in Victoria who is facing the first person to face charges under foreign interference laws. Mm. Who is the base of his charges are a thought crime. He mm. thought about interference, and they can't prove it. And the judge knows they can't prove it, but he, but let it go to trial mm. as well. And yeah. their, their closest thing to proof of it is that he was encouraged to do what he was considering doing by a member of the government, a parliamentarian at the time. So, And, and what was the, the specific thing? A donation Donating to money hospital. to a hospital. That's foreign interference. Yeah. And he could, what is it, 10 years he could Something face like that, if, yeah. if this has gone. This is in Australia, right? So don't tell us about authoritarian uh, China. I will say this, um, because, and people may not like to hear it, but, but the reason that um, we don't lose our head over these these events is because um, there is another side to the COVID debate, right? The people who protest, they just get totally sick of the lockdowns, etc. And and, um, and and then they're susceptible to thinking, oh, there's some big nefarious agenda behind this. Well, there's a more obvious agenda behind it, which is that the people who make the decisions are really worried that if they don't have some form of restriction, then you will get a virus that rips through. And China has an aged population and a lot of people will die. And frankly, a lot of, like a lot of Asian cultures, they revere the elderly more than we do, mm. right? Um, and they're a bit concerned about that. Yeah, and I mean, you look at the you look at the statistics here. Who 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 are the most of the victims of, of COVID yeah. in Australia are, are the elderly, yeah, who so, weren't looked after. So the young so, are protesting, and and China, for all its progress, and it's made a lot of progress in a short period of time, its its number of ICU beds per thousand is nowhere near a truly advanced industrial economy like Japan's, right? Um, it's probably at our level. <laughs> yeah, they, right. they rely on their, on their better organisation and mobility with their high-speed rail and so on to get people from one place to another. That's why all these staged lockdowns, you know, staged in the sense of, like, you only do this area at a time, uh, so many areas at a time, yeah. um, so that you can move medical staff and equipment around the country. So and we don't even have that. So they've got that over us, at least. But you're right; they are responsive to protests because there is signs now that they, you know, they can see the the population, the young, they're at the end of their tether. You know, mm. in many respects, that's why there's these protests. So there's signs that they're looking for ways to relax it. I've heard that they've built a whole heap of massive hospitals. So instead of having lockdowns for everybody, you just put the take the infected and put them in hospital until they're fit, until they're either clear of COVID or well. Mm. And, and the, pub, the rest of the public can move around. Yeah. So they can do that. That's the sort of stuff China's good at. Yeah. Right? And it's obvious, obvious they've been had this in you know, the planning phases for a yeah. long time because even they can't just build that many hospitals from scratch in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But, so. if you, but, but if you, you know, back to the Victorian thing, people outside of Victoria couldn't believe Dan Andrews got re-elected. Hmm. I always knew, thought he would yeah. um, uh, because I knew that a lot of what people were were. were being fed outside Victoria was just total exaggeration, right? And and then that was true for Australia as a whole. About a year ago, 
when the mandatory vaccines came out, you know, and I wish they hadn't done that because that led to even bigger protests, etc. Um, that was overreached by the government, except then the American right-wing press and social media weaponised that. People were being told that Howard Springs was a concentration camp. In fact, the Howard Springs issue got ridiculous. Amnesty International put out a statement attacking Howard Springs for being a concentration camp for Aborigines, and Amnesty in Australia had to put out a statement contradicting Amnesty International, saying, no, it's just a quarantine camp. It's not, there's Aborigines in there, yeah, but there's also all the Australian... Olympic team are in there as well, mm. right? That's, that's not what you do if you've got a concentration camp. And so how did Amnesty International stuff it up so badly? Well, it's just that all this stuff was hyped. And there's a comparison to what you're seeing on the news in the social media about mm. China. Learn how these things work. Yeah, and the classic example of misperceptions, which I know you were t intended to talk about anyway, is what's just happened in Taiwan, right? Exactly. Well, so think about before you, I want you to say what you know about it, but we just nearly went to war over Taiwan. Hmm. You, Nancy Pelosi went to show solidarity with the wonderful Taiwanese people, right, who want their, you were told they want their independence. So what happened, Richard? The, uh, the ruling party, currently ruling party, the DPP they're called, um, they just lost... Uh, they just lost uh, 13 out of 23 seats, uh, districts in the regional, elect local, you know, government elections, the provincial, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, the way their system works over there. Uh, to, the, to the KMT, the Kuomintang, the former Nationalist Party of China that used to run China before the Communist Party took over in 1949 and fled to Taiwan under mm. US tutelage, uh, but they're, they're not necessarily pro-reunification, but they, are, they want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain and expand diplomatic, uh, diplomatic uh, trade, I should say, relations, economic relations. So they just won uh, a majority of the seat, a large majority of the seats. And they focused their campaign on economic matters, yeah. which meant basically better relations with China because Taiwan's whole economy is dependent 100% yeah. on China. While the... The ones who lost focused on this sort of independence yeah. rabble-rousing. Yeah, independence and hyping up the, the, mil the supposed military threat that everybody there knows is just not a thing. Yep. You know, they could be. It's, it's like, you know, it's a large, powerful country. They could be a threat, but they're not threatening anybody. Yeah. Um, but then I, I read a very interesting article by a, a, a former, an Australian former public servant, now university pre uh, professor in Japan, uh, was on Pearls and Irritations the other day. Uh, Gregory Clark, his name is, he's just pointing out, he was there in 1961 in Taiwan, um, meeting with the ageing uh, dictator, and he was a dictator until 1980. The, the Taiwan was a you know, democracy, no, it was a military dictatorship until the mid-80s. Yeah. Um, but he, was, he said he was sitting there with Chiang Kai-shek and they're watching paratroopers training, dropping into the water and swimming ashore with heavy, heavy packs on their backs and all the rest of it. Chiang still thought then, he said to him, this is how we're going to retake the mainland. He still had this delusion that they were going to go back and kick out the communists and take over again. And Clark just points out that mindset, that's the generation of people that were inculcated with that. They, they speak better Mandarin than they do in Beijing, mm. you know, he reckons. Um, they, they are Chinese. They, they see themselves they as were, Chinese. They were, yeah, they see yep. themselves as Chinese. They intended to... Yep. Yeah, they, they, were, they were raised to believe that they're going to go back and run things again. Yep. 
And nobody supports the separatists except for a tiny minority and the Americans and the hangers on like Canberra. So, so that's just been shown in elections. And let's, let's um, talk about another case of separatists, which is the, the, uh, the East Turkestan Uyghurs. Mm. Um, so you've written an article this week because Jack James, who I interviewed on the show about a previous report she did debunking the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's claims about Uyghur forced labour... Mm. Well, she, Jack did a brilliant job debunking that report. So I've interviewed her and we can link to the... If you haven't seen the Jack James interview, you, you've got to watch it. But Jack James has now written a different kind of report on an event that happened last year, I think. Or this yeah, about a year ago. Oh, it went for about a year. So, so it's called the Uyghur Tribunal. Mm -hmm. And it was a follow-on from a organ harvesting Yeah, just tribunal, called the China Tribunal. China Tribunal. Both in London. And before that, the same guy had run a, a Syria... Tribunal? No, no, no. Um, so the guy oh, we're talking about. a report about, on it. Yeah. So the guy we're talking about is Sir Jeffrey Nice QC or yeah. KC. I guess he would be now. Yeah. Um, so he was the everything he's ever done, his whole claim to fame has all been attacking Anglo-American geopolitical targets, right? Yeah, yeah. Like targets people targeted by Britain and America for regime changes of various kinds. So, so he gives a, he, a veneer of legal respectability yeah. to propaganda, basically. Yeah, so he led the prosecution of um, uh, Slobodan Milosevic in the, in the early 2000s for alleged genocide and war crimes. Now, whether or not the genocide and war crimes happened, other people were convicted of various things. Milosevic died in custody in 2006 of a heart attack. He was posthumously exonerated on all charges for lack of evidence by the UN War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. And remember how they got Milosevic. There was actually a war in Europe mm. <laughs> in 1999. Mm. That NATO, NATO bombed in, the country. Illegal, illegally and bombed, yeah. this, bombed the country, bombed its infrastructure, all of it, and the Chinese embassy so when on they, purpose. So when they said at the start of this year that, that what Putin did has started in Ukraine is the first time since World War II. Yeah. Right. Nope. Anyway, so that was that one. Um, then there, in 2014, there was this thing called the Caesar Report. That's the Syria connection. Oh, yeah. Yep. So they, they collected a bunch of photographs, supposedly by this defector from Syrian military intelligence, of torture and murder victims and your usual war crimes. You know, people call it war porn, um, atrocity porn. No, it turned out it was... Even Amnesty International came out in 2015 and said, no, that was just like at least half of those photos were just people, including Syrian soldiers, who were just yeah. being killed in the fighting. Yeah, they can't, there was way too much for any of it to be true. So, uh, and then this Uyghur tribunal thing, this uh, China tribunal thing in, two, in 2019, was a, a, a put-up job by um, an Australian NGO, um, uh, I forget its name, uh, working with these separatist organisations that are funded by the US government through the National Endowment for Democracy, to, uh, to promote uh, secession from China in what they call East Turkestan, the, the Xinjiang yep. Autonomous Region. Uh, and so Nice was the, head, the you know, chairman of that. He, he led that thing. Uh, and they used ridiculous, uh, you know, I won't go through it all here, but these completely implausible accusations backed up by just hearsay evidence and, and lunatic statistical, you know, you wouldn't call it statistical analysis, statistical projection of allegations that had already been investigated and dismissed, not just by the International Red Cross, that supervises the whole global, you know, um, organ 
organ harvesting, legitimate organ yeah, harvesting yeah. and transplantation pro, uh, protocols, but by the U.S. Congressional Research Service as well, this, this uh, right. independent office yeah, yeah. That, that just conducts research on behalf of uh, members of the U.S. Congress. So, um, so they, they weren't even convinced. So let's, let's come to the Uyghur Tribunal. What has Jack done in this report about this that, that you know, impressed you, basically? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing, these people's tribunals, there's been many of them over the years. Um, they're not, there's this legal grey area, um, you know, depending on how you want to read things like the UN Charter, particularly, which, which Jack goes through in the paper, um, as to, you know, because there, there are things for various political reasons and because of the veto powers of the, of the Security Council members and so on that just in practice, can't be examined in international courts, by the UN, yeah, by, yeah. The UN by the Hague yep. tribunals, the various things. So people constitute these people's tribunals to unearth evidence, to, to, uh, you know, to get people on the, uh, yep. on the record about what they say has happened. The key being, if those are going to be seen as legitimate exercises, you have to follow the the same protocols meet or exceed the standards that courts hold themselves to right, yep. to verify evidence, right? So what, um, uh, what Jack's done is put together a, um, the first time that I know of anyone having actually done it is sort of suggested a, a set, two sets of criteria for what constitutes legitimate, you know, expressions of what she calls people's justice or just show trials. Yeah, right? yeah. And so she deliberately doesn't say which one, this, uh, which side of the line or where on the spectrum or whatever you want to call it, this uh, Uyghur tribunal falls. But she just goes through, it's pretty clear that, you know, they haven't met, um, they haven't met the, the, the standards that of, the, of the international courts, of state courts. They haven't met the standards set out by people like the Australian uh, Justice Michael Kirby for instance, um, who she quotes, um, takes a lot of his criteria for this, um, who's participated in previous ones of these, um, these mm. people's tribunals. Um, you know, quotes some things from the, uh, the Tokyo uh, Women's Tribunal that went through the, the, war, the war crimes of the... Comfort women. Yeah, the comfort women and other things that the yeah. Japanese army did that everybody admits they did, everyone except, you know, certain people in... Uh, our favourite our favorite Japanese politicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so she's just gone through and said, well, okay, here's what the, 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 the world's best experts say you should do if you want people to yeah. value this process and the, and the output that it produces. Um, and here's what the experts on show trials, people like this um, uh, US federal court judge who was a, a court clerk at the time, uh, wrote this thing on the um, trial of Saddam Hussein, anatomy of a show trial, or whatever he called it, back in 2007. Um, and he's now a federal court judge, uh, Jeremy Peterson, um, and a couple of others. But, um, yeah, just saying, okay, here's, here's what a show trial looks like, basically. Here's, here's what a proper trial would look like. We can't have it in a court, but we're going to do the next yeah. best thing. Um, and so, yeah, um, it's very clear to anyone who knows the facts of the case, and we'd previously looked into it already, yeah. um, of this Uyghur tribunal, that, yeah, it doesn't measure up at all. No, and, and Jack James, with her legal skills, is very good at, at, at drawing these things out. We'll put a link to the article below because it is worth uh, reading. These things like the reason we, that you know, we, we pay attention is because in the 
disinformation war against China, things like the Uyghur Tribunal constituted in London with people like Sir Geoffrey Nice and you know, respectable legal names on board, it just gets reported as if it's a, an, an official thing almost, yeah. right? Yeah. And so at the first point, it's not official. And then second point, it's not even, it doesn't even meet the standards. Yeah, of what yeah, should yeah. Be I mean, and that's the problem. Yeah, we've got this McCarthyite political climate that's been created where China's automatically guilty, usually even after proven innocent, yeah, yeah. If, if you can even prove a negative, so to speak. No, that's right. <laughs> and so you've got to look at this, these things yep. dispassionately and say, okay, well, what, you know, has this met the standard or not? And that's, that's, what, uh, that's what Jack's done with this paper. Ever since the Iraq war, we should all be motivated to do that. The road to war is paved with lies and the consequences are enormous and that's why we're doing this. So anyway, Richard, thank you very much. That was excellent. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. We're out of time. Just remember the inquiries that we've encouraged you to participate in. 12, you got to the 12th of December to, do the, to make a submission to the nuclear inquiry. That link will be below and the ASIC inquiry the 3rd of February. Um, and the other links that we've mentioned will be below as well. Thanks for tuning into the Citizens Report. Tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.